0: Well, good morning, everybody. Once again, it's uh, great to see you all. Hope you had a great week, a profitable week, as we come together this Lord's Day to praise our King and Lord Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17. We'll just be reading one verse this morning, and as we um, continue on through the message, we'll begin to unpackage it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which reads, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you are the giver of life. And Lord, we're thankful for our Messiah, our Lord, our Savior, our King, who gave his life and ransom for many, who delivered us from death and sin and eternal destruction. This has given us a new life, a new beginning. Lord, you have made us into a new creation designed to worship your holy name upon this earth and throughout all eternity. Lord, I'd ask that you would Grant me the ability, enable me to be able to proclaim your word this morning, Lord. Such a weak and fragile man that I am, Lord. My dependence is completely and entirely upon you. Lord, thank you for the congregation that's here this morning. I pray that you would give them the ability to listen and to hear what you would have to say to them this morning. Lord, that we as the body of Christ can Not only encourage and edify one another, but that we can go out into the world boldly and bravely, unleashing the gospel into the world. I ask all these things in the blessed and holy, righteous name of our Lord. Amen, and so be it. Once again, we are approaching the beginning of another year. And millions of people throughout America are putting together their list of resolutions that will hopefully enable them to make change to their lives for the better. The new year will be an opportunity to start over, to correct any imperfections in a person's life in the hopes of achieving success and fulfillment and for many the American dream. One such man believed he could actually accomplish this and reach the status with enough effort, self-control, and self-determination. His name was Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin is an American legend. He single-handedly invented the idea of the self-made man. Despite being born into a poor family and only receiving two years of formal schooling, Franklin became a successful printer, scientist, musician, and author. And in his spare time, he helped found a country and then served as its diplomat. The key to Franklin's success was his drive to constantly improve himself and accomplish his ambitions. In 1726, at the age of 20, Ben Franklin set his loftiest goal, the attainment of moral perfection. He is quoted as saying, I conceive the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wish to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom or company might lead me into. In order to accomplish this goal, Franklin developed and committed himself to a personal improvement program that consisted consisted of living 13 virtues. The 13 virtues are as followed. Temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, Moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and the last one was humility. And he says, imitate Jesus and Socrates. In order to keep track of his adherence to these virtues, Franklin carried around a small book of 13 charts. The charts consisted of a column for each day of the week, and 13 rows marked the first letter of his 13 virtues. Franklin evaluated himself at the end of each day. He placed a dot next to each virtue he had violated. The goal was to minimize the number of marks, thus indicating a clean life, free of vice. ultimately with the hope of becoming morally perfect. But history has another version of Franklin. One that many of us are not acquainted with, and that was his involvement in a secret society called the Hellfire Club, or what we would call today a Gentleman's Club. It was a combination of politically involvement mingled with a sexually charged atmosphere. It dabbled into the occult with rituals of Satanism, orgies, and in some cases even murder. There is no proof that Franklin hurt anyone or even participated in these mock religious rituals, but there is a clear evidence that he had an appetite for women. Franklin even wrote several papers on subjects, subjects such as advice to a young man on selecting a mistress. His famous Polly Baker letter was an appeal to old maids to have as many little illegitimate children as possible in order to build up the population in the colonies he also wrote passion has hurried me frequently into intrigues with low women that fell in my way which was attended with some expense and great inconvenience because a continual risk to my health by a distemper which of all things I dread although by great luck I have escaped it From a religious perspective, Ben announced that he did not believe in the immortality of the soul and he considered evil permissible since God had created all things and so had, presumably, created evil also. Even when he was an old man of 84, he wrote to Ezra Stiles, the president of Yale, saying that he doubted the divinity of Christ, although he believed in his moral teachings. So it seems that Franklin was really never able at all to fulfill his great quest of moral perfection. So what is your New Year's resolutions this year? Here's a list of the top 10 from being 10 going from the least to the greatest. Number 10 was we're going to, Spend more time with our families. Number nine, to be more thankful. Number eight, spend more time with the family. Number seven, spend less time on social media. Number six, make new friends. Number five, get a new job. Number four, find love. Number three, believe it or not, quit smoking. Number two, improve your finances. Get out of debt. And number one, which seems to be the most popular, which we see every single year, right? Lose weight, exercise, and get healthy. Is that right? The ancient Babylonians are said to have been the first people to make New Year's resolutions some 4,000 years ago. They were also the first to hold recorded celebrations in honor of the new year. Though for them the year began not in January but in mid-March when the crops were planted. During a massive 12-day religious festival known as Akitu, the Babylonians crowned a new king or reaffirmed their loyalty to the reigning king. They also made promises to the gods to pay their debts and return any objects That they had borrowed. These promises could be considered the forerunners of our New Year's resolutions. If the Babylonians kept to their word, their pagan gods would bestow favor on them for the coming year. If not, they would fall out of the gods' favor, a place no one wanted to be. A similar practice occurred in ancient Rome after the reform-minded emperor Julius Caesar tinkered with the calendar and established January 1st as the beginning of the new year, circa 46 B.C. Named for Janus, the two-faced god whose spirit inhibited doorways and arches, January had special significance for the Romans believing that Janus symbolically looked backwards into the previous year and ahead into the future. The Romans offered sacrifices to the deity and made promises of good conduct for the coming year. For early Christians, the first day of the new year became the traditional occasion for thinking about one's past mistakes and resolving to do and be better in the future. In 1740, the English clergyman John Wesley, founder of Methodism, created the Covenant Renewal Service, most commonly held on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. Also known as, known as a Watch Night Service, they included readings from scriptures and hymn singing and served as a special alternative to the raucous celebrations normally held to celebrate the coming of the new year. Despite the tradition's religious roots, New Year's resolutions today are mostly a secular practice. Instead of renewing our commitments to the Lord, most people make resolutions only to themselves and focus purely on self-improvement, which may explain why such resolutions seem so hard to follow through on. According to recent research, while as many as 45% of Americans say they usually make New Year's resolutions, only 8% are successful in achieving their goals. But that dismal record probably won't stop people from making resolutions anytime soon. After all, we've had about 4,000 years of practice. Basically, New Year's resolutions are grounded in this idea that we can become a better you. While it's certainly not a bad idea to want to change bad habits and start good habits, this perspective that somehow we, especially in the church, can somehow reinvent ourselves is totally foreign to Scripture. Totally foreign to Scripture. Joel Osteen, who is, self, who is a self-proclaimed pastor, televangelist, and author, who preaches to an audience of 17,000 people every Sunday morning at his church based in Houston, Texas, has had an enormous impact and influence on the church in America in this area, and in this view, and in this ideology. Osteen wrote two books, one titled Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential, was released in October 2004 and reached the number one position on the New York Times bestseller list. He released his second book titled, Become a Better You, Seven Keys to Improving Your Life Every Day, in October 2007. It also topped the New York Times bestseller list and had a first printing of three million copies. Osteen has said that the book focuses more on relationships and not getting stuck where we are in life. I don't know how many of you have been to the Christian bookstores lately or the Christian stores around town, but if you walked into those stores, you'll find very quickly that most of the assortment of books and reading material and things that they have there are really not based around Christ at all. Most of those places and shops have really been turned into a life enhancement store and how to better our lives, how to be good, uh, how to reinvent ourselves, how to change ourselves by doing good things. Joel Osteen teaches that we are being saved from unhappiness and failure in life, not from sin and God's wrath. Osteen does not teach that we need a divine rescue from judgment, but rather simply a self-improvement plan. So what does the Bible teach about making changes in our lives, permanent changes, that really do not require a to-do list every year? It does not require a so-called New Year's resolution. Well, we find the answer in 2 Corinthians 5.17, which reads, Therefore, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things, old things, old ways. The old self really has passed away. And behold, all things have become new. This is God's idea, remedy, if you will, on what it really means to become new. The whole idea of a new life is shown in Scripture really as the crucified life. It's not really about a better you. It's really about a crucified you and living our lives to the glory of Christ. We must understand one thing and be clear one thing. Newness, any newness at all comes from Christ. True, permanent, lasting newness comes from the Lord, not from the old man. No matter how many New Year's resolutions we write out, how many goals that we make, these things, obviously, listen, aren't bad in and of themselves. We're not condemning making uh, new resolutions to want to make some some godly changes in your life. These are good. But if we think we can make these changes without the power of God, the power of Christ in our life, we gr- we're greatly dismayed and greatly deceived. We have to understand... That we are literally made in the image of God. Every human being on the planet is made in the image of God. Every fallen creature, not obviously animals and trees, I'm talking about human beings, are made in the image of God. And at some level, creation groans to be renewed. Creation groans to be made new. Am I saying that unregenerate people want to come to God, want to come to Christ? No, not unless the Spirit of God empowers them, gives them a new heart, and causes them to desire after true biblical righteousness that can only be found in Jesus Christ. But in God's common grace, in God's common grace upon all humanity, there is a desire of redemption upon all humanity. But these urges for redemption, you will see, turn into what? Idolatry. Man, from the very beginning, sought to recover himself once sin came into the world. Let's read Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Right after Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, and they disobeyed God and violated the commandment of God, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Notice that they began to sew. They began to make. They began to want to clothe themselves. There was a hunger and a desire to get back to what they had lost. They began to work to obtain what they had lost. And they began to cover themselves to somehow think that by covering ourselves, we'll, sat- we'll satisfy this inward dilemma of sin, which can, which can never satisfy. The outward workings, good works, doing good things, making changes, will never change our nature. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can give us lasting and permanent change. In Galatians 6.15, Paul nails it. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. The whole point, he's not just talking about, he's not talking about just circumcision and uncircumcision. He's talking about outward obedience, outward um, alignment to the laws of God. Does not avail anything towards God. But a new creation does. When God visits a man and changes a man and transforms a man, makes him into a new man. This is what makes us right with God. It's the complete, total workings of of a sovereign God upon sinful humanity for His own glory. It's the power of the gospel at work in a human life. Ephesians two ten says, "But for we are God's workmanship. We're not my workmanship." You're not your own workmanship, but you're God's workmanship created how in Christ Jesus to do good to do good works which God prepared in advance. As our way of life, showing therefore that the workmanship is entirely in the hands of God from the beginning and to the end. And we were created in Christ, the new creation. And our good works flow out of a changed life, a redeemed life, a sanctified life. It does not flow out of just trying to figure out what we can do to perfect ourselves by correcting ourselves in a very fleshly way, but only these changes can be made by God Himself. Amen. Second Corinthians 5 17 says, Therefore, if anyone if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Okay? And then the the response to this reality of being new, being a new creation, having the new life, the response to this is that the old things, the old ways of life, pass away. And he says, Behold, all things have become new. And this is the whole idea of a converted, regenerated, born-again believer. That his life, his old life is gone. It is He has died with Christ. He is now a... New creation. And with the reality that he's in Christ and he's a new creation, this reality of being born again, you can see very clearly that the old ways of your life have been crucified. They're gone. And this reality, this born-again reality, where Jesus says you've overcome the world, that you've overcome the past behaviors of your life, and not just behavior, but the old self, and you've been given a new life in Jesus Christ. The book of Second Corinthians, a um, little background, it, it's a Pauline epistle. It's actually a letter from Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote it in about 56 AD. The key personalities of this book are the Apostle Paul, Timothy, and Titus. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth to defend and protect his apostleship and to teach and warn against false teachers who were spreading heresy. Paul was dealing with the Corinthian church, a church he himself planted. Imagine planting a church and then having everybody in, that, everybody in that church turn against you. You become their enemy. They began to rebel against Paul and against his leadership. But they eventually repent and they reconciled reconciled with Paul and Paul was reconciled to them. And Paul's main battle at that point was against false prophets, false doctrine, and those of the church idolizing super apostles of the day. Very similar to our day. The whole letter of 2 Corinthians can be consolidated into four areas. First, we see Paul's defense of his ministry. We know Paul came into apostleship a little bit later. We know that he was a murderer of the church. Right? He was an enemy of the cross. And God knocked him off his high horse, and God transformed him, and God be, began to use him gloriously. In 2 Corinthians 11.5, it says, Now I consider myself in no way inferior to those which the Bible calls super apostles. Uh, they were more like the golden tongue men of the day. They were the men that uh, the church began to look up to. They seemed to be more learned, they seemed to be more educated, they seemed to be more polished than Paul. They had a hypnotizing effect upon Uh, the people of Corinth. They put them almost like into a spell and they began to, like what we see today, worship these high and mighty pastors, putting them up on a pedestal in their ivory towers and looking to them as if they were the end all, the be all. And here's Paul, a little limping, beat up man who's been through all kinds of persecutions, all kinds of afflictions, wasn't really pretty to look at, wasn't really exciting to listen to. But Paul knew that he had the authority of Christ. Why these men claim to have all these, these special talents and special abilities, he's actually had visitations from the real Christ. He met with Christ. He was given his gospel from Christ. And none of these things moved Paul. He wasn't moved by these things. He wasn't inferior to these super apostles by any means. And in our day we see the same thing. There's a lot of this super apostle mentality floating around the American churches today. Men that love the worship of men. They're personality-driven apostles. They love fat bank accounts. They love to be seen. They love to play the fame game. They love all these ideas about themselves. It's not about Christ. But the sad thing is, is that the people love it too. And they put them in these positions. They worship these men. They love these men. And they're addicted to these men. And this is a very scary place to be when you're talking about the church. Because the church is the prize of Christ. The prize of His death. The shedding of His blood. Taking on Himself the wrath of God. The value of the church never be trampled underfoot by any pretender or super apostle. But by those that truly love Christ will be honored by Christ. Those that truly preach the word of God We'll be honored by the Lord second um, area uh, of Paul's contentions was the divisions and immorality in the church in second Corinthians 12 20 and 21 he says for I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish and that shall be that shall be found by you such as you do not wish lest there be contentions And jealousies and outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, gossip, whispering, conceits, disorder. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. Paul is dealing very very clearly, here that when he comes, listen, let me not find you the same way that I left you with all the gossiping and the slander and the backbiting and, and the whispering and the disorder and practicing lewdness and sexual immorality. You know, not only did he have to struggle with super apostles, he had to deal with the immorality of the church, which many of them, as we see, repented and came to Christ and saw the power of the gospel. Gospel changed their life. And another one of Paul's contentions, not really contentions, really was To make sure they understood the gospel. He always brought everything back to the gospel. Even in this letter, 2 Corinthians, he comes back to the gospel in 5.17, which is our text for the day. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, reminding them of who they are in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. And then we see a few verses down. In verse 21 he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was showing the righteous transaction of the substitutionary and vicarious death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've never seen people... I've never seen a doctrine... Medicate a human soul like this powerful illustration and reality of Christ who was made sin, who knew no sin, that we could become the righteousness of God, that Christ became our substitute and took upon himself this full wrath of God in our place. And if you could just meditate upon that reality and think of what that actually means is that you died with Christ. And the Bible says that you have risen to the newness of life, that God himself covenantally planted you in the very death of Christ. And when he rose from the grave, you covenantally rose with him to a brand new life. In the fourth area, Paul dealt with was a warning against false teachers spreading heresy among new believers. Extremely important that Paul, it's interesting because Paul doesn't give us a a, a list of things in how to necessarily deal with each heresy and, and, and error that was trying to come into the church. Paul dealt with everything at the foot of the cross. He dealt with everything with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He dared not venture outside of that reality and start giving people a bunch of self-help, a bunch of resolutions. He gave them the gospel of Jesus Christ because he knew at the end of the day the only thing that was going to make any lasting permanent change was if they understood who Christ was. If they understood who they were, that they were poor, depraved sinners in need of Christ's righteousness. And if they understood this reality, that there would be humility. There would be humility opposed to being impressive. Because all what was happening with the super apostles in that time and that era was this idea of everyone has to impress everybody. There's an impressiveness that really was defined as what they would see as godliness. They look at a super apostle and based upon their backstory of who they've become and how successful they are and how wealthy they are, this was a sign of their spirituality. It was this idea, this theology of impressing everybody which Paul says is, is really no gospel at all. The reality, true believers, if they've truly come in contact with the holy God, the God of all creation, who came to us through his son, Jesus Christ, then there would be not an impressiveness, a, a performance-driven mentality, but there would be humility and meekness and quietness. And This would be a sign of one that's truly been converted. This is what Paul said in 5.17, that those who are in Christ will be a new creation. There will be that change. There won't be a pride-driven life anymore. It'll be a death to your pride. And instead, it'll be humility. Christians should be humble. We shouldn't be pride-driven people. We shouldn't be so easily offended. We shouldn't be ones that behave just like the world and get bitter because someone says something to us that makes us unhappy. We should be those who can overcome evil with good. Demonstrate that we have been born again by our behavior. Boy, that's a new thing for our day. In a day when a majority was 80% of the population in America would call themselves or identify themselves as Christian. What does that even mean anymore? What does it even mean to be a Christian? What is the definition of that anymore? Certainly most of it is not biblical at all. We have to come back to Scripture and allow the Bible to define who we are and define what it truly means to be a believer. Because if you allow the Scriptures, God's Word, to define you, As he defines you, you're going to find that this world that we live in is not going to be as easy as you think it is. Because a true Christian will be combated and antagonistic against the things of this world. In Ephesians 4.24, Paul said, And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, and holiness. Colossians three, verse ten says, "And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator." Here we're seeing God's definition of newness. What it really means? What's what is what is the new self? We can throw the Bible aside like many do and start. Basically, fashioning our theology based on our emotions, or we can come back to Scripture and allow the Scripture to define who we are and how we're supposed to behave, especially if you're truly converted. Jesus said in John 3:3, 3, 3, Jesus answered and said unto Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here, Jesus was very clearly laying the line, same what Paul was saying about this changed reality, this newness, that literally you are blind to the kingdom of God unless you are born again, unless you are born from above. Jesus understood that, and he says, Nicodemus, you being a master of Israel, teacher of Israel... You don't know these things because these are the key points of the Old Testament all through the New Testament. In 1 John 5, 4, the Bible says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. It doesn't say that you might overcome the world. It doesn't say that you could overcome the world. It doesn't say maybe you'll overcome the world. It says, for whoever is born of God, boom, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The Christian faith is a prevailing faith, brothers and sisters. Your faith, your conversion, your new life, being a new creation, will testify to, Of a prevailing faith, not that you need to be a show off, because it's exactly the contrary to what we see with the super apostles back in Paul's day and the super apostles of our day. That your godliness and holiness was seen in your perseverance under affliction, under rejection, under all kinds of of basically all kinds of confrontation from the adversary will show our integrity and our character and our love for Christ. Not whether or not we drive a Mercedes Benz and have a million dollars in our bank of account and we have the most fashionable clothes on and we can preach the most prettiest sermons. The reality will be found in just the opposite. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Not that they'll begin to endorse the doctrines of hell, but they'll be able to confront the doctrines of hell, and the doctrines of hell will not prevail against the true church. Romans chapter 6 verse 3, Paul says, Do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him. Think about that for just a moment. you were buried with Christ through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall walk in the newness of life. There has to be death before life. You can't bring you into the equation and just want to better you. It's you need to die. Jesus said all of those who will come after me, what? Must take up their cross. They must die daily and come after me. So what is our New Year's resolution this year? Where does this bring us as the church of Jesus Christ? I mean, what is the motive of our hearts? What is the motive of starting a new year? This year is about over. It had its challenges, it had its successes, It had its, it's had its sanctification, sanctifying power upon our lives. God has used it in many ways to, hopefully through a lot of the craziness out there, it has been used for God's glory to grow us and to change us and transform us more into the likeness of His Son. So what is our most, how should we approach this whole idea of a new year. How do we go into the new year? What is this idea? If we're born again and we're truly converted, what should be our motive? Well, in chapter 13, verse 5, Paul gives us three areas of change. Uh, The first one, he says, well, let me read the entire verse to you. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Paul lays out three points that examine yourselves. A good New Year's resolution for you this year is to examine yourself. Spend some time, search your heart, meditate upon the Word of God. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things to you. Spend some time with God and really understand where you're at and what changes need to be made, not for your own glory, not for yourself, to become a better you, but because you can be more pleasing to God. See, there's a reason why we were created. It wasn't just so we can have a good time on this planet and then just die. The reality was we're created for the glory of God and to enjoy Him forever. We are literally created to glorify God. Our purpose on this planet is to glorify Christ, to glorify God. That's why we're here, to make Him known to the nations, to declare His glory, as the Bible says, to the heathen, that we're here for the very purpose of, Of not only knowing God, but making him known to the world. And then Paul says, test yourselves. Test yourselves and see if this is a reality that you are in the faith. You want to examine yourself, most certainly. But also, make sure your examination is honest. How do you do that? Well, you test that examination by the word of God. It can even be tested by the fruit. Jesus said, You will know them by their fruit. There will be testifying, saving realities in the fruit that a Christian bears in this world. To see a, someone calling themselves a Christian and living just like the world is an oxymoron. It's a non reality. They're not a Christian if they behave just like the world. I do know that God made a pronouncement upon creation that all things were very good. These things are utilized for the glory of Christ. Yes, they're utilized for the enjoyment of the saint. But they should never be worshipped. We should never become slaves to anything of this world except Christ alone. And then Paul says, know yourselves. Know yourselves. He says, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? This reality of these earthen treasures, that Jesus Christ is in us, that wherever we go, whatever we do, it's this karam deo, that he is, he is there, ever present with us all the time. And there's nothing in your life that isn't important to God. Do you understand that? Isn't just having a church career, Okay, why well, go to Bible school, Or I do these things, or I pass out tracts, or I preach on the streets. See, it's all things to the glory of God. Everything that we do, whether it's in our homes, whether it's washing dishes, whether it's vacuuming or taking out the trash, all these things are important to Christ, important to God. And we should treat everything in our lives the way we raise our children, the way that we speak to our spouses, the way that we, the conversations that we have with our friends. All of these things are important to God. There is no separation. There is no compartmentalization of your life. You can't just be a Christian here on Sunday and then go out and live just like the world Monday through Saturday. The reality is is that Christ wants it all. He owns it all. And he wants us to glorify him through it all. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. And know yourselves. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, since we have this ministry given to us by God, I mean, do you ever just stop for one moment and think of the sobering reality that you, in all of your disgusting, vile sin, a monster of iniquity, have been converted by God because of His grace and mercy upon your life, not because you deserved it, not because you're talented and good-looking, But He saved you based upon His own decision and based upon His own mercy and based upon His own glory. He gives us a ministry. What is that ministry? What ministry could be beyond the reality of preaching Christ to the world? I mean, do you realize that we have been given the mandate? A small minority of people on this planet have been given the greatest mandate of the universe, and that is to share the God-man with the world. The only gateway into heaven, we've been given that responsibility. Do you realize that the only way man can be made right with God is through Jesus Christ? And God has given that mandate to his people, and we're bearing the very name of Jesus Christ through our sinful lips? Do you realize that? That the Spirit of God is moving through a sinful body. And we've been given this beautiful ministry. Don't take it for granted. Don't treat it as a light thing. Don't be fickle about the gospel. Be grateful that God's not only saved you, but He's given you something to do. doesn't mean you've got to start a ministry and go out on the street corner. It means that your ministry starts right where you're at. And maybe it's be preaching the gospel to your children. Do you realize that your children have souls and that someday they're going to go to heaven or hell? It's the most important ministry that you have. He says, Since we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Then in verse he says for we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your slaves for Jesus sake for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ this is our mandate this is what we are living for don't be overly concerned about self Yes, examine yourself, test yourself, know yourself, but then get on with the work that Christ commanded you to do. Get busy, because that solidifies this reality of examination and testing and the knowledge. It all brings everything into action. It's like taking an inactivated credit card that doesn't work until it's activated. Once it's activated, all the benefits are there. And this reality in the Christian's life As we begin the process of of growing in Christ, we grow more loving towards our brothers and sisters of the faith, but also in that love, we're constrained by that love to take the gospel to the world. Which I'll leave you with this verse this morning. uh, 2 Corinthians 4.12 says, So then death is working in us, but life in You. Paul is saying here very clearly that our lives are really spent confronting death so that you can experience life. Nothing worse than a false, hypocritical, unstable testimony. We should do everything in our power to be guardians not only of the truth, but guardians of our own testimonies. Because once you lose your testimony, it's very hard to regain trust ever again. Obviously, repentance puts you in the right relationship with Christ. But to the world around you, it's very difficult to recapture that trust. Let us be reminded as we go into the new year this year, that our lives need to be changed permanently. And we need to draw near to to our God and decide today that my resolutions is I'm going to be resolute to do whatever it takes to please my Lord and bring the gospel to the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Uh, We thank you for the word of God. Lord, thank you for these verses that strike us at the very core of our being and raise an awareness in our lives. Lord, we know that there's no other way no resolution, no making these little books about trying to be morally perfect will ever work to conquer sin. Only in Christ can we be made a new creation. And that will be seen by the fruit we bear. And this I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.